welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. No Daryl Grove today. He'll be back later in the week. But for now, we have another Englishman. I believe last time he was the tallest working man in football. This time, maybe he's the warmest working man in football. It's Sam Ty of the BR Football Ranks podcast. Sam, thank you once again for appearing on the Total Soccer Show. Oh, no problem, buddy. You're right. Oh, my God, it's hot here in England. I mean, it's it's going to be hot in most places, right? But this yeah. is a country that just do not have the facilities to deal with two weeks of good weather. We moan all year that it's rubbish, and then we get the good stuff, and we moan that it's too hot. So that's just the English way. You're all going to have to deal with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's that's where we are. Hey, at least it's not raining, and at least we've got a really, really quite amazing week of football to look forward to, thanks to uh, the Europa League and the Champions League. First of all, that's just a tremendous transition. Thank you for that. Second of all, yeah, let's talk about this week in football, because we do have the Champions League starting Wednesday. We have a game every day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But I want to start with Europa League, which is today. Uh, Monday, we've got some games. Is this, like, I think it's the format itself, because we have all these games in a condensed window, already makes it more exciting, but then so often I feel like we get sort of one team that is very clearly the dominant team in the Europa League at this point. Maybe you could make that argument about Manchester United, but it does feel like we've got a lot of good fixtures for the week. Is there one that you're most looking forward to from uh, the various Europa League games? Well, I think the hipster in me is loving Inter versus Bayer Leverkusen. Of course. And of course. Uh, that's, you know, that's to do with, uh, you know, the crown prince King Kai Havertz uh, <laughs> and, his lo- and his loyal soldiers. But I mean, I, I like... I like most of most of Leverkusen's side. They're, they're extremely interesting. They are, as we as we talked about, and, you know, in the last time I was on the show, they're like one of those teams that if you watch them, the eleven players that you see on the pitch, like at least six of them are going to be moving to a very big club near you within the next two years. So it's always good to keep tabs on what those guys are doing. And Havertz is one of them. Edmund Tapsover at centre back is another. They're just a lot of fun. Uh, and against Inter. You know, into looking to basically save their season. And, you know, Antonio Conte, that, that man is on the verge of imploding uh, because he's so angry with everything happening around him uh, and just his entire life that if he actually goes out at this stage in the Europa League, that might actually be him. He just combusts. So that's always <laughs> worth watching, too. Um, Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sevilla, you know, shout out Daryl for the Wolves. I mean, I, I really mm. hope they make it through. But Sevilla are a really, really tough, tough, tough opponent. They're actually a bit wolves-like in how um, and how rigid and solid that they can be, and how difficult they can be to break down. And it's really weird looking through the team, just because like there's a load of players that like you've always heard of, and you're like, is he any good? And like, no, he wasn't. But at Sevilla, hmm, yeah, he is. So like, remember Fernando <laughs> yep. was at Man City as the defensive midfielder. He does an amazing job in midfield for them. Ever Benega is, I don't know how old, into his 30s, looking as good as ever. Lucas Acampos, it took him like six years to, you know, for him to realise his potential, but he's finally doing it. And they've got Regulon on loan from Real Madrid at left back. And he's been linked to Chelsea recently, I saw, for about 18 million euros. That'd be an absolute steal. So that that's a really good game. And the little shout is that from what I've seen of Shakhtar Donetsk, there is no reason not to believe that they are not a contender for this tournament. They are not the United, the Inter, the Sevilla, the Wolves team. They're, they're not that that standard because people don't really know that much about them. But man, what they did to Wolfsburg was like verging on criminal. They just took them apart. They are they are a solid outfit. They should beat Basel, and then we'll see. Like they're the real dark horse here. They have a, they have a chance of winning this competition for sure. Did you say Everbenega is thirty? He's 32 or something, isn't he? I think he's been 32 for 14 years. I'm pretty sure. But no, I think you're right. He's, I think he's early 30s. Yeah, that still just blows 32. my mind. I would have thought he yeah. was like 45 at this point. Uh, <laughs> if, right, so like, 
stick with Wolves Sevilla for a moment. You've said this, it's like a similar style, similar approaches to the game. Do you like when that happens? Do you like when you have two teams sort of of a similar inclination going up against each other? Or is there, do you have one particular sort of matchup that you like? If it's a defensive team versus an attacking team or two high pressing teams, like what is the combo that you tend to want to watch and enjoy? So I think simplifying it, I just, what I want to see is um, two different shapes. Okay. Um, yeah. Two different formations. Because when you, when teams match up shapes, um, the, things can get a bit stodgy. So, like, if you just go three-five-two against three-five-two, then you're both looking. You've both got three centre backs. You've got a man. Both got a man advantage at the back, so they can take care of the two strikers. You're going. You're going three v three in the middle. You're going one v one on the flanks. So it becomes about individual quality, which can create really interesting matchups and it can create incredible moments. But if the teams are not top quality, it can lead to a stalemate. And I think the biggest one there is when four two three one meets four two three one. My God, they can be they, that can be some really boring stuff. So with Wolves, <laughs> obviously play, playing in a back three, and Severe Severe utilise a back four. They use a four three three most of the time, uh, and Wolves playing a back three. So I think the matchup numerically there will be holes for people to take advantage of there will be little spaces that open up as a result of two different shapes taking each other on and that's that's basically what i look for uh, you know as long as there's going to be some um some mismatches somewhere some zones that are going to be available to utilize that's when you know teams start getting pulled around and clever passages of play can really start to pull teams apart that's basically what i look at if the formations are the same i'm a bit like oh here we go <laughs> And then we do have the bracket in place. Uh, we've got, uh, as you already said, it's Wolves, Sevilla, Man United, Copenhagen. That's one side. Uh, Inter Milan versus Bayer Leverkusen, and then Shakhtar Basel. If, like, with that in place, is there a final that you would most like to see? Is it is it uh, Wolves versus Inter? Is it Leverkusen, Man United? What's the one that you, would have you most excited to watch the Europa League final? I mean, I want to see. I want to see Man United Inter in the semi. Um, I mean, I love I love Bayer Leverkusen, but I think I think Inter will win that game, and I think Inter are actually the strongest team in this competition. Uh-huh. So, I think the one I, apologies Taylor, but the one I really want to see um, is Inter against Shakhtar or Sevilla because it's just so quirky and so me, yeah, and so so off the beaten path. And sorry to Daryl as well because I've just basically knocked both of your teams out. That's fine. Um, I mean, it's hurtful <laughs> and it feels personal at this point, but whatever. That's how you got to be. Uh, and since you've made it personal, I'm just going to move away from the Europa League. Let's talk Champions League, where I have no vested interest, aside from Tyler Adams. We'll probably talk about him. But let's start with the game on Wednesday, Atalanta-PSG. Uh, and let's start with a fitness report for that game. Uh, because there seem to be varying reports about who is in, who is out, uh, who is suspended. We should probably talk about that as well. So who are the players who you know will not be there, and who are the players who you think will not be there? Oh jeez, um, yeah, this is this is this is tough As, because most of the reporting comes in the non-English language, particularly yeah. for Atalanta. They just do not get widely covered, um, and even though they're a Champions League quarter finalist, you know, news of, for example, their starting goalkeeper Pierluigi Gallini getting injured and he is out for the game that doesn't filter through to like the masses. Like mm-hmm. you've got to look that up. I was like, oh my God, Galini's injured when I wrote my preview today. Um, and I also read a few previews, previews that suggested that Palomino, the centre-back, is out. Although I did find the report from four days ago saying that he was in a race to make it and he might be okay. And then I started looking at Atalanta Twitter accounts and people were asking, they're like, is Palomino fit? And they're like, I don't know, I'm going to check. And they never got back to them. And I'm like, dude, we're waiting for news, come on. <laughs> so, I, like, it's so difficult. And... Golini is out. He has tweeted, I'm sorry I can't take part. That means he's out. Yes. 
confirmed. Right? That means he's confirmed out. He had like his leg in a cast. Like he's definitely out. Um, I, I don't know if Palomino makes it the centre back. Ilicic is. I know there's been some serious, seriously wild reporting about him, about personal circumstances that I, I do not. I do not know. Um, and I don't want to add to it because mm-hmm. it's really, it's really quite insensitive. But I did see that Gasparini, the manager of Atalanta, had said that he hopes that Ilicic will be able to rejoin them next season. So that would suggest Golini and Ilicic mm-hmm. out. Now we know Di Maria is suspended. I'm pretty sure we're not going to see Mbappe from the start if he only started training on Saturday because of an ankle injury. Verratti, as far as I know, they're basically not planning to use him. Um, having spoken, spoken to a couple of people this morning about the ridiculously like mounting injury list here because Tilo Carrere is technically fit to play, but I don't know. I don't know if he gets there. Bernat is apparently half fit. Um, Ander Herrera has not been able to play consecutive games for a while. So this could be a bit, a bit sudden for him. Um, Verratti. Yeah. Verratti's Verratti's probably not going to make it. Even Thomas Tuchel's injured, dude. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, how did that happen for people who missed it? What went I, on there? I, I don't. I don't know. I, th- I presume it was training. I'll just yeah. quickly Google it because I, I think he turned his ankle or something. Yeah. But like, he, oh, he's broken his foot. That's not good. <laughs> he's broken his foot, sprained ankle, and fractured metatarsal in training. I mean, when your luck's out, guys, that's that. That just sums it up. So we're missing. We're missing a lot of players here, and specifically in midfield for PSG. They look like they're going to have to field like Marquinhos and Idrissa Gay, and one of Leandro Paredes or Ander Herrera, which is like, it's not the enterprising, creative midfield that you would really expect from a club like this. But they are genuinely limping into this tie. So I don't, I don't know as they have a choice. Literally and figuratively limping into the tie. You, you've yeah. sort of answered it there then, but the, the problem with, or the problem for teams trying to deal with Atalanta is their sort of fluidity, the way they flood one side, then flood the other. Papu Gomez pops up here, pops up there. How do you think PSG will deal with that? It sounds like you're expecting them to have a more sort of rigid defensive spine in the midfield as opposed to a 4-2-4 slash 4-1-5 when attacking that they sometimes have. Yeah, they do. They like the four two four, don't they? But that's they really when do. everybody's fit. And and Hal Di Maria is really crucial to the four two four because you know one of those four, one of those four is gonna have to pull their weight defensively. And uh, yeah, we've definitely seen uh, Neymar improve in that area. Um, Mbappe will do his bit. Icardi is not supposed to be tracking back, and but Di Maria is the one that really kind of tilts it into more of a four three three at times. And and he is suspended. He's out. So I don't know exactly how they deal with with Atalanta down the flanks because. PSG's fullback combo that I expect it's either Bernat and Carrere who's obviously a centre-back who's been converted um, or it's going to be Bernat and Colin Dagba which you know is definitely not how they drew it up um, they can't allow those guys to be isolated and picked on by overloads but when you've got Robin Gosens and, and Hans Hatterborf like streaming down the sides and cutting inwards towards the box and their goal and assist tallies from wing back this season have been incredible. Atalanta switch one side, they switch the other, they flood, they create a 3v2, they get into the box, they get the, the, the wing back into the box and they shoot and they just shoot loads. So the PSG match up really poorly here. And if I were them, I would, I would probably try and use a back three and try and support those wingbacks inside a little bit better. I don't think any of it's ideal. I just think what they do have in their favour here is if they do use that quite stodgy midfield three, Marquinhos, Gay and Paredes, or swap Herrera in for Paredes, they have a quite a good chance of cutting out the switch balls for, across midfield. They might be able to be quite aggressive and attack the horizontal passes that they play. And if that's the case, they might be able to nick it, release Neymar, and you never know. But it sounds weird, but I'm sort of projecting a battle here on my head 
that has PSG like sitting back yep. and absorbing and allowing Atalanta to take the ball and then trying to nip in, disrupt, take it and go. And that is not how PSG should be at- approaching this lineup. But with the limitations they have on their team and their fitness, I don't, I don't know if they're going to be able to stop Atalanta from really working the ball around and see what happens. And you know, there's a one key battle in here, Marquinhos against Papu Gomez. Like Marquinhos at the base in midfield, stopping Gomez is picking up little spaces and just letting fly and feeding little cute balls into the box. As he floats around, he's so hard to track. But Marquinhos is, is a sensational footballer. And if there's anybody that can really try and nullify him and, and, and close him out of the game, I think it's him. And if he does manage to do that, they're halfway there. Uh, the other bit is obviously the wingbacks and how yeah. they deal with, 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 with the attack on the flanks. I, I don't know how they stop that. I also think, though, this is the conundrum of Atalanta, though, that if you do try to mark Papu Gomez out of the game, if you just put somebody on him, he will exploit that. He will then drop very deep and pull Marquinhos 30 yards out of position, or he'll go to the flank and pull Marquinhos out there until the point when then Marquinhos does go back central, and then Gomez will find that space. So I almost think, to some extent, trying to man-mark him isn't necessarily going to be the solution that it might be with other sort of creative like uh, playmakers that you might be able to just sort of stick somebody on. Under Herrera did that with Aiden Hazard, and it worked really well when he was with Manchester United. I don't know how well that works, but I'm also aware, and this is the question I would ask you, is basically that I might be in a bubble. Because I think I am so all in on Atalanta that I am everything I read is like, oh yeah, PSG are going to be without this person and Di Maria suspended. They're not going to be able to do that. And how are they going to handle that? Oh, Atalanta have got this in the bag. And I am sort of now approaching it that this game from that perspective. But I'm aware that that is very much probably my bias and my enthusiasm for Atalanta. Uh, so I would like to ask you then, like, how misguided am I in that feeling of this feels like it will be Atalanta winning and PSG will have to kind of find a way to perform to be able to get a result? Is it maybe more safe to say that PSG are the favorites and Atalanta will need to play their game 100% perfectly in order to advance? But no, so on the, the Gomez point first, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't deploy Marquinhos into like a let's follow him around role. Sure. Um, I would just say that when Gomez tries to move into those spots just outside the penalty area, Marquinhos is there. And he's smart enough to recognize the runs and the movements and he'll be smart enough to cut those things out. So I definitely wouldn't want to see him running all over the place either because Gomez would drag him out. And Atalanta do that anyway. You know, Gomez does it, but Zapata mm-hmm. does it. Zapata keeps running over to the right wing. Um, to drag to drag markers out to allow Hatterbor to move inside. So like they all do it, and you've got to be really wary of the cycles of movement. So you're right, that would be a disaster, and I, I don't want to see that either. But you do need a very very positionally aware player in that little spot there to stop Gomez from just letting fly, just picking up those spots. So I, I'm with you there, but okay. I would I would uh, I would I would say Marquinhos is, is well placed to do it. Um, look, when I did my preview this morning, when I tallied up the injuries, I looked at the approaches, every from every conceivable angle, while trying to utilize logic, I was like, Atalanta are going to win this game. Mm-hmm. And I then wrote PSG to Atalanta 1 at the bottom <laughs> because, <laughs> because there's something gnawing away at me, which is like, don't be a fool. Like, don't, don't get so carried away that you discount the presence of one of the three best players in the world. Mm-hmm. on the pitch in Neymar. Don't just count the fact that... Oh, I think you're talking about Idrissa to... Ganagay. You're talking about Neymar? Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> talking about Neymar. If they, if they need to, they can bring Mbappe on. Um, and he'll probably, be, he'll probably be able to play. Like, he won't be able to do 90 minutes, but he'll be able to play. And if they need him, they'll, they'll throw him on. They'll do what Juventus did when they, they 
needed the goal, so they threw Dybala on and he got injured after like four minutes. But they, they'll try it. Um, and they have they have the individual quality to get through this. Um, they also have the players. Like I'm, I'm projecting like a, a difficult battle for PSG, but they've got this maturity now, I think. They showed a maturity against Dortmund in a round of 16 that I have consistently criticised them for lacking in previous years. They've got all the talent in the world, but they haven't got the right mentality and they haven't got the maturity. And the things that are working in PSG's favour this year is that they do have that maturity. Players like Marquinhos really coming really coming of age and getting a lot better. They've got Tuchel, who, as long as he doesn't completely overcomplicate it, can actually come up with a really good plan. They have Neymar fit and available for the first time at this stage in three years. And Mbappe is, one I think, one of the best five footballers on the planet. So I tried not to, like be led along by the narrative that obviously you've obviously ended up at the bottom of the rabbit hole for. Uh-huh. See what I mean? So yeah. every conceivable angle I got was Atalanta could probably win this game, but I went for PSG. I know out of fear, out of respect for Neymar. I don't know what it was, but the, I think it's the maturity element that they've shown against Dortmund that really swayed me. I thought, hang on a minute, they will be able to dig this out when they need to. Another thing that I, I found, like I basically then sort of did, I think what you did, which was like tried to think about PSG from different angles and how they might be in a better position, how they might be stronger than I think I'm giving them credit for. One other kind of random idea I came up with that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is that PSG have the reputation for coming apart in big games, particularly in the Champions League. Oftentimes, it is the idea that Ligue 1 is just not strong enough so that they don't get the consistent challenges. They don't have to adjust their tactics to stronger opponents. And so when it comes to the Champions League... They can handle it for a while, but eventually they come apart. Do you think there could be an argument made that because you don't have the league happening, you just have this sort of tournament that they're in against top-tier opposition, that they have to raise their game consistently, they don't have to then go back and play some team that just got promoted that have the budget that is like less than 1% of PSGs? Is there maybe an argument there that with just kind of consistent, high-quality opponents ahead of them that they will be able to perform at a more consistent level than we've seen in the past? Yeah, I'm always torn on that one. I mean, specifically coming out of lockdown, if PSG hadn't played two cup finals in the Mm. last like week and a half, I'd be a bit further down on them, right? Because we all know that teams need a little bit more, um, a little bit more practice to get that sharpness back. And I I think PSG are are probably there. But on like a general seasonal basis, you know, we always get this argument like, is it is it that they have to play, you know, Mets and Sochaux? Um, you know, that one week and then and then they have to play Barcelona and the next, can they raise their game? I don't think it's as much of a problem as uh, as people make it out. I mean, it, it, we're all guessing at the end of the day in, in that regard, aren't we? We're all we're all um, we're all guessing. But mm-hmm. I think I think it's generally just a case of uh, I think it's a player mentality thing. And it's been it's been that the leaders in their team, the so-called leaders have been poor leaders. Um, and I don't. I don't want to like sort of like just paint anyone with a with a with a, with a negative light here, but like for example, Thiago Silva, the captain, you know, the the leader of the back line, you know, anyone that I speak to that covers PSG regularly is like, well, look, I mean, on these occasions, on these nights, it's it's it's, it's guys like Silva's job to get everybody else pumped up and to lead by example in the way that you would expect Sergio Ramos to do so, and he just hasn't done it, and 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 PSG have had a a string of players who are supposed to be that leader, that veteran, that standard setter. And on the big occasions, they actually just haven't managed to do it. And I think it's more to do with the crop of players that they've selected for those roles more than just the fact that they they bounce in and out of a so-called farmer's league. I, I don't know, though. 
Hello, everybody. Much more Champions League chat from Sam Tai still to come. But first, I wanted to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Hims. You've heard us talk about Hims before. 4Hims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. One thing we don't often talk about is that they do also have lots of other products. They've got vitamins and supplements that you can utilize. They've got a sleep uh, vitamin that you can use to sleep, obviously. These are gummies that are formulated with melatonin. They help your body fall asleep very naturally. There are gummies for immunity. There are biotin gummies. Biotin uh, are gummy vitamins packed with biotin. Acts like a superpower for your hair, skin, and nails. There's collagen protein powder if you need protein powder. If you're going the smoothie route, you could use that to help you there. So there are many different products. And then obviously there's also the fact that Hims connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to help treat erectile dysfunction. They offer well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. And, of course, those well-known generic equivalents are backed by science, which is always very important. You want things backed by science, not so much opinion. You don't want medicine that's backed by, I think it's going to work. You want medicine that a doctor has said, it's definitely going to work. So you can try Hims today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to 4 slash totalsoccered. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash totalsoccered. 4 slash totalsoccered. Prescription products are subject to medical provider approval and require an online consultation with a medical provider who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or a pharmacy. So remember, go to 4 slash Total Soccer ED. Thank you very much to Hams for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Now back to Sam. Uh, I will say that this is why Sam gets paid the big bucks, because I couldn't think of a crap French team. He thought of two very quickly. So well done there, Sam. Well done for for, t- for talking that one out. I appreciate it. Uh, the final question I have then about PSG, aside from his broken foot and uh, and sprained, uh, sprained ankle, Thomas Tuchel, I don't know where he is in terms of his footing with PSG. If they do lose this, if they are eliminated, do you think he's in trouble, or have we sort of passed that? Are they all in on Thomas Tuchel? Will he get the backing to continue to grow the team, even if they lose? No, I think he's in trouble if he loses. I think he's, I think he's in a lot of trouble, to be honest. Um, speaking to a couple of people today, um, they seem pretty convinced that he will be in hot water. Um, I think the patience with him is, is running a little bit dry. I'm not saying he's gone. Um, obviously, it depends on the nature of things. And um, yeah. Uh, I think I think I think there's a couple of managers out there right now that they quite like the look of, and 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 that would be, yeah, Allegri and Pochettino for sure are, are, are sat out there, and I think I think PSG have it's, it's all it's all down to the the sporting director, it's down to Leonardo and what he thinks, um, but their relationship I don't think has been that strong over the last year or so, so uh, yeah, let's say that let's say that Tuchel uh, Tuchel Tuchel will be in 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 a spot of bother if he doesn't win this one. And in the other manager's box, we have Gasparini, who's put together two very strong seasons with Atalanta and many seasons before. What do you think would be ideal for him? Do you want to see him move to maybe a larger club where he'll get a little bit more financial backing? Or do you think this is one of those examples of a manager sort of being in the exact right situation and maybe just needs to stay there and continue to do what he's doing? Yeah, I like I like Gasparini where he is. Um I don't. I mean, he's, he does seem like a perfect fit. I mean, he's um, he's a good, he's a very good manager, and he's got the best out of some 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 good players, but not some great players. And he's got Atalanta punching well above their weight. We always roll out the statistic that Atalanta's budget is lower than Burnley's. You know, that Atalanta operate 
financially at a level at which you would expect a mid-table championship club to operate at. And look where they are. You know, 78 points Serie A season, Champions League quarterfinals on their composition debut. It's a perfect match. It's just one of those kind of one of those one of those matches that just makes sense for all parties. I don't want to see him move to a different club where the spotlight is harsher. One of the beauties about about managing a club like Atalanta, we alluded to at the start, it's not widely covered. So when he does make mistakes and when they do when they do make errors and when things do go wrong, no one like really notices. And it's not like Gasparini's perfect. And it's also not as if on his career C V he hasn't got big club big clubs on his CV mm-hmm. where he's basically messed up right? right now. You don't want to hold past experiences against a manager too long, but I think anybody looking at Gasparini has to look at like how he was at Inter and it just wasn't very good. And it, it was very unconvincing under the glare of the big club spotlight. So just like let him, let him work his magic and, and let, let him roll the dice at Atalanta and, and we're all good. I mean, look, if there's a, if there's a upcoming, I guess, cause I say upcoming Gasparini's not, not young, um, but if there's an upcoming Italian manager that the big club should be looking at like that. I mean, obviously Lazio uh, and Inzaghi. Inzaghi's the one that that is probably ready for that next step if 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 someone wants to offer it to him. And and that would be Simone for people who uh, aren't yeah. following Serie A very much, not people. Yeah. Um, right, so <laughs> if we're talking about uh, Atalanta PSG one last time, fair to say then that the battle that you are most interested uh, in keeping an eye on would be Gomez versus Marquinhos? Yeah, I mean, look, the game's going to get decided via how well they handle Papi Gomez, uh, because, and that's because Ilicic isn't going to be there. Uh, we have to make that clear. How well they handle Papi Gomez um, and how well they're able to stop the raids from the wingbacks into the box. And if you have to pick just one battle, yeah, I think it's going to be Marquinhos against Gomez. All right, so that's Wednesday. Thursday, we've got RB Leipzig versus Atletico Madrid. Another game, like you kind of have to have this caveat with every single match, but another game that was a completely different narrative before we have the shutdown, as opposed to where we are right now. Let's start with where we are right now with Atletico and the latest news there. They've confirmed two positive coronavirus tests uh, reported to be on Hel Correa and Simi Versalco. Uh, they've had to enforce self-isolation measure- measures. Is there any risk of them not being able to play, or is this just sort of... We're going to go in lockdown. We're going to deal with it. Those two players probably won't be participating. Well, I think they've been left at home and Atletico have traveled and mm-hmm. everyone else in the squad has tested negative. There we go. So all good. All right. Well, not all good because two people have coronavirus. Well, there's but, that. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But you know what? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Uh, and then in terms of other issues, uh, I read in your preview, there are some concerns about Thomas Partey, especially since he will be a key performer for Atletico if he's able to play. What are the issues there and what do you think he brings to that team if he is able to play? Yeah, I just I just was again doing the doing the rounds and trying to find the injury updates and I saw a couple of references to to Thomas's fitness and um and about the fact that he wasn't certain to start. I don't actually have any more information than that because I learned that this morning when I looked round. <laughs> um but it, but uh checking it with a couple of people who cover uh, Atletico um and they're like, "Yeah, well we're not sure if he's going to play." What he brings Thomas is I think there's there's some there's definitely some misconceptions about Thomas. Um around the world you know he gets linked to arsenal for 50 million pounds all the time and um which is always funny because arsenal don't have 50 million pounds uh, <laughs> to spend on on one player but uh the, everyone sees thomas as this uh, as this rock solid defensive midfielder who will break up play for you who will set the platform you know your rodri um you know what what's what someone like matic used to be he's your fabinho which you, i think that was the case with thomas like two years ago but it's amazing how many strings he's added to his bow over the last couple of years. And, and Thomas, for me now, is um, 
He's an incredibly incisive um, passer. He's a really, he's really good on the ball. He's a good chance creator from deep. And his vertical passing, the risk, the risky passes he plays, really get Atletico moving through the gears and and passes it between the lines. So, I think to what what they'd miss most from Thomas is the ability to to transition from defence to attack accurately and quickly, which. Trust me, against Leipzig and, and, and the way they press, it's going to be really important. Now, I don't know how hard Leipzig can press because they haven't played for a month mm-hmm. competitively. So I personally think they're going to go for them in the first 20, like really go for them. And because I don't think they're going to be able to press for 90 minutes and they're going to try and score a goal in the first 20 minutes and they're going to they're going to go for it there and then. And because the longer this game goes on, the more it favours Atletico Madrid. In my in my opinion, my next question was: in terms of how the match will play out, is it safe to say that uh, if Leipzig can get a goal in the first twenty minutes, they will be very happy? But if it's nil nil after sixty, Atletico will be very happy. Is that is that about what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> and I and then I do then have this sort of with that in mind with the way Leipzig restarted and sort of like looked a little bit slow at times, looked a little bit disjointed at times. Yeah, yeah. It does seem to me that Atletico have that advantage because they are just so solid. They know exactly what they're going to do. I do see this as even if Leipzig are able to press for 60, 70, 80 minutes, I do think Atletico weather that and find a way through. And that is sort of how I have this going. It's like one or two nil in favor of Atletico, uh, which I'm sad about because I would like to see a more open and expansive game. I don't know how likely that is, given that we don't have, say, Timo Werner involved. How big of a loss is that going to be for Leipzig? Yeah, a couple couple of things that have happened, really, that have, like, very steadily over the last few months, this game has shifted from in Leipzig's favor to yeah. like, very heavily into Atletico's favor. And Timo Werner leaving Leipzig is one of them. You can't just, you know, he's 34-goal striker, he's gone. And he's also, you know, their transitional player, that he's their quickest player. So he you lose so much from him, not just in front of goal, but in terms of building play quickly as well. So he's gone. And... The other things that have, have really worked in Atletico's favour is that they themselves have found a goal-scoring touch post-lockdown. You know, from August to February, they couldn't they couldn't hit a barn door. It was ridiculous. And then they come back from lockdown, and Marcus Llorente is turned into like the world's best support striker. And yeah, Diego Costa is better. Alvaro Morata is better. And they started scoring goals. They dropped they dropped five on one team at one point. Like they, they, they've really, I think I looked. It's like they've, they've gone from 1.2 goals a game to 1.8. Um, just out of just out of lockdown, like it's a really really big swing. So you've got no Werner, Atletico are suddenly potent as well as solid, and the single knockout format. There's no club that this benefits more than Atletico. All they've got to do is Simeone the hell out of three <laughs> games, and they win the whole thing. Like it's obviously way easier to do that over three games than it is over five games, particularly with the short turnarounds and. I just, I've honestly half convinced myself that Atletico are going to win this tournament, man. I, I mean, you, when you phrase it that way, it does make a lot of sense. It does then beg the question for me. Simeone is a, by all accounts, a very demanding manager. Seems to be well-liked by his players, which maybe in and of itself is confusing to me because when you have a coach who is so disciplined and so focused on those little details and requires so much of his players in training... From my understanding, a lot of times that training then is is fairly repetitive, that you're doing a lot of the same things over and over and over again to make sure that everybody's on the same page. 
that can lead to frustration. That can lead to a little bit of burnout. Mauricio Pochettino found that out, that players can eventually get tired of that and want something different. How do you think it is that Simeone has managed to keep his squad motivated and just sort of able to handle the pressures of so many different campaigns at so many different points, and yet he seems to kind of endure and still be in a strong position? I think they're all terrified of him. <laughs> I, think, I think they all know that if they, if they slack off, he's going to burn their house down. <laughs> so, so they do what he, they do what he says. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I get, I guess there's, I guess there's a respect. Um, there's a, there's, and there is a fear factor. Um, his assistant manager as well, Herman Burgos, he's gone now, but he's been super scary for a long time. There are a couple, there are a couple of men that you do, you do not cross. Um, and you do not upset. Otherwise you find yourself on the wrong end of something. Um, I've got uh, a little story, which is, um, last summer when João Felix joined Atletico Madrid for 120 odd million, uh, I was in New York in the Bleach Report offices and we did an Ask Me Anything on the app with João Felix and I recorded a little interview with him going over his highlights. Uh, so I met him at the door uh, and let him in. This is Felix and asked him how he was. And I was just trying to, at this point, I was just trying to gauge how good his English was because I didn't know like how, like what his vocabulary was like and how much, how difficult or easy this, this interview was going to be. You know, he's a, he was a 19 year old Portuguese kid. I can't just expect him to have perfect English, but he actually did. So fair play. Um, so I met him at the door and I'm like, Oh, how's it going? You know, what's it like? And he, I was like, he's like, Oh yeah, it's going well. I was like, what's it like playing for Simeone? And he just stops and looks at me and you know, when your eyes just go super wide, <laughs> he did that, looked at me and just went, my thighs, man, my thighs <laughs> like that. And he'd been doing, he'd been doing sprint drills and his, like his, like, the lower half of his body was just like immobilized. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah. That's really, it's, it's really, it's really bad. Um, I was like, okay, cool. And then, so he has a handler with him. We do all the stuff we need to do. And I'm trying to take a photo with him, um, as, as you would. Um, and his handler, the guy that's, that's working for Atletico, but he's like, guys, I'm really sorry, but we've got to go. Like, like if, like if we're late, Simeone is going to murder me. Like we have to leave. Like, I'm really sorry. We, we've got to go now. He's going to be really angry. And I was like, oh my God, he's got this entire club in a, a bind of fear. <laughs> like they're all terrified of him he's a so, he's a tiny tony soprano is basically what i'm hearing from this you. is yeah, it's just like a long long way to answer it but like i think i yeah. think they're all i think they're all scared of him um so 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 yeah but anyway atleti like it's it shaped up so well for them you know no Werner. it really it, it blunts leipzig they don't have another player like him unsurprisingly um you know patrick schick and yusuf paulson good players but they're both six foot four target men you know they've been using one or the other and Timo Werner's been playing like a free striker role off them. He's gone now. I think the buck stops with Christopher and Kunku at this stage, um, who is brilliant. He's going to have to have some game, some game to get through this one. He and Danny Olmo are now the, the kids that they have to look at and point to as the future. But the transition away from Werner, you know, with no ability to replace him in the transfer window here is really tough. And it, it really takes this game away from Leipzig. I think, um, you know, he's the one that would have pounced on that stray ball in the box. Um, he's the one that would have would taken them to, from naught to 60 or led a counterattack or, or beaten the fullback and, and fed a ball in. You know, they're much slower without him. They're much less potent without him. And I worry about the fitness and the sharpness and the inability to carry out what they would like to do over 90 minutes because of the circumstances. 
My next question was going to be who is the most important performer for Leipzig and why is it Christopher and Kunku? Since you've already done that, is this, I'll ask are you, you this. just are you lying? Are you, oh, is this, is no, this that really was that was that was on that was on the list of questions I had for you. My <laughs> next question then becomes why haven't you discussed Tyler Adams and why do you hate America? Of course, I'm so sorry. Um, well, hate America because you don't wear masks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny and it makes me sad all at once. Good stuff, Sam. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, no, it's uh, it's uh, so Werner obviously the most important. You can't take that many goals out, and and it and it and it just be fine. Um, and Kunku is is a is a wonderful player. Uh, I think at his best, driving driving from deep in midfield, but can might and might actually end up having to play the Timo Werner role here. He has played a little bit off the target man, and he has got a good nose for goal. But I think he's better from range, and he's very creative. He's not necessarily a hard goal scorer. They've got other very good players, man. Like the midfield will be hard to get around because. Um, Marcel Sabitzer, who plays like basically every position under the sun, has had a superb season and he's a threat from range as well. And Conrad Limer in midfield, like if you're looking for like a low key, like this is this is your, like, your next N'Golo Kante, like so much energy from this man. He's just up and down, up and down the fitness levels, the stamina levels. They are incredible. And he is central to their ability to press and counter press from midfield and steal the ball. Conrad Leimer is a 23 year old Austrian midfielder. He is so good. He is the closest I think I think I can I think I can find to N'Golo Kante, to be honest. So there's some really good players in this team. They're, they're not they're, like it's not it's not like we're just like completely counting them out here. But the. The, the, the narrative of slid generally all of the developments have pushed this game into Atletico's favor over the course of the last few months and um, to be honest when the coronavirus cases got confirmed as two and we didn't know the identities I was sat there thinking you know without wanting to be too crass pretty much anyone in this team could be ruled out of this game except Oblak and they'd still be fine Mm-hmm. There's only only player that they could have lost to self-isolation here and and have genuinely really really been a poorer team for it was Oblak because the system the system the team is so good is so well-rounded it's only really Oblak that truly stands out as like an irreplaceable performer. So with all of that said then we talked about key matchups for PSG Atalanta what would be the key matchups here the things that you'll be keeping an eye on the most? Um well Leipzig are going to, if, if Leipzig players, I think they will. So I think they're going to go for it first 20. I think they're going to press. That always means they play a very high line, basically on the halfway line. And they do that because they have extremely quick centre-backs who can recover. So Atletico playing quickly out from the back and basically testing Upper Meccano on the halfway line, the centre-back, to see if they can get in behind him. And he is quite rash. He's very, very good, but he is quite rash. and He does make some misjudgments. So that's, that's the flow of the game, I think. Atleti absorbing the pressure and then trying to tease those balls in behind to try and release Marcus Rense, to try and release Alvaro Morata, whoever plays. If it's Jao Felix up there, maybe he's on the flank. I don't know. Um, that's, that's where I'm looking at. I think Upper Meccano's performance on the halfway line basically decides whether or not Leipzig keep Atletico from counterattacking them in the way that they do. Was Upper Meccano the player that you were consistently trying to see have a very good game, but everybody else yeah. kept having stronger games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have, have, right, you, yeah. have you had your game with him yet? <laughs> yeah, I saw it. I saw it. Okay, all right, I good. did. Ev- I did eventually get one. I've really come round to him, but it's taken me a long time to to do so. I can't help but feel like that he's not the best French centre back at RB Leipzig. 
which is like the dumbest thing ever. But like <laughs> he has a partner, Ibrahim Konate, who hasn't been able to play very much this season because of injury. But I fundamentally believe that Konate is better than Upper Meccano. But Upper Meccano gets talked about as a 60 million euro player. And no one says anything about Konate, uh, which always confuses me. But but here we are. Anyway, Konate's had so, surgery. So, so he's, he'll be he's, signing, in, he's injured for this game. He's going to be signing for Southampton for like 15 million pounds in a season. And then we're all going to know how good he is then. Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, 15 would be low. I think they know how good he is. Okay. They just, they're just grateful that no one else has figured it out yet because <laughs> Upamecano takes all the limelight. A whole bunch more still to come from Mr. Sam Tai of the BR Football Ranks podcast. But first, a quick word from Indochino. Well, if uh, one of them does perform very well to the point where they justify a massive price tag, then either of the next teams that we're going to talk about could probably pay it. Or at least one of them could. One of them used to be able to. We've got Barcelona, Bayern Munich. I am confused by this game in the way that I'm sort of not confused by this game because it does feel as though it's going to be Bayern Munich winning this one pretty comprehensively. Even with Barcelona looking so good against Napoli, Messi scoring, Suarez scoring, everybody looking happy and smiles abounding, it is still the case that it's Barcelona who have looked fairly dysfunctional at moments versus a Bayern Munich team that have not. I'll put it this way. The last two times these two teams met in the knockout rounds, uh, I think the most recent time Bayern advanced 5-3 on aggregate after, uh, I think, losing, or excuse me, uh, Barca advanced with, uh, I think, Pep in charge. Uh, the time before that, Bayern advanced 7-0 on aggregate. Which of those is more likely, a narrow Bayern escape or maybe Barcelona finding a way through or just Bayern winning by a massive scoreline? Man, I, it's, it feels like sacrilege, but I just, think, does, Bayern, right? I just think Bayern are going to kill him. I, I do, I do. They're just so much better. And we shouldn't be saying this because this is Barcelona and they have the best player in the world in Leo Messi. So this doesn't make sense. But, I mean, Barca is literally just give it to Messi and see what happens. Like they're, they're, not, they're not a particularly cohesive and functional team. Um, they're going to really struggle with Bayern's cohesion, but also the speed and the relentlessness that they play with. And Barca being quite old, quite slow, quite sluggish, and the fact that they don't defend with 11 men, like this is this is serious, right? They defend with nine men because Suarez and Messi don't defend. They don't do anything off the ball. Now, maybe for the big one against Bayern, they, they ramp it up a notch. But at their age and, and, and with Luis Suarez's injury history and his lack of sharpness, like I don't even know if he can do this anymore. So mm. they need all hands on deck to even be in with a shout of winning this because Bayern are just the perfect football team at the moment from what, from what we've seen. They are great in possession. They can cut through you in three passes they can pass around you and for 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 two minutes and you won't touch the ball they can control everything everything on the pitch they can control and then they can just kill you just like that they have so much speed through the wings and through Alfonso Davies they have the best striker in the world in Lewandowski Thomas Muller is playing as well as he ever has done maybe even better than when he was back in 2013 when they won the treble and David Alaba is leading a defensive line that just doesn't really leak any goals. And they have the recovery speed at the back end. When Bayern lose the ball, every single player sprints back to recover it. They get 11 behind the ball. They get they go back so fast. It's incredible to watch a team of that amount of talent work that hard and buy into the commitment of running back. Everybody's responsibility is to retrieve this ball. And Barca do not apply to that. They, they, they just don't. Like They stand around. They're quite sluggish. They're just going to have to give it to Messi and see what he can do. And personally, look, on the on the theme of the key battles as we're picking them as we go through, mate, Messi versus Alfonso Davies is something I am looking forward to more than anything else in this entire week of football. I'm I'm 
hadn't really thought about that one, and I'm now picturing it and understanding exactly why. Wow, that's going to be very exciting. I cannot wait to see Alfonso Davies try to handle Little Messi and use that catch-up speed and Messi having to deal with that. Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating battle. What I still am stuck on, and I don't really have like a, a clever or articulate way to ask this, so I will just ask it bluntly. What does Hansi Flick do that is so good? Because <laughs> Bayern are very good. They've got all of those pieces, but we've seen many teams have those pieces. PSG, we've already talked about them, have the strong pieces but not put it together. And I, I can't imagine it is simply Hansi Flick just putting out the 11 players in the positions they want to play and then saying, like, okay, go do it. Like, I know there's a lot of work that's going into this team, but it's tough to see because they're so good. So I'm wondering what you've seen from Hansi Flick that makes you think this is a manager who knows what he's doing and has got this team humming. Yeah, I mean, he picked up a bit of a mess, didn't he, really? I mean, as we we often remark anecdotally, you and I were sat there together as we watched um, Bayern Munich lose 5-1 to Eintracht Frankfurt at the end of last year. We watched... Bayern hit their absolute nadir mm-hmm. and we were stood at a bar in the streets when it was announced that Niko Kovac was fired on the TV and we yep. watched the fallout happen yeah and so they've come a hell of a long way since, that they since, have since then and it is absolutely I can't remarkable. believe that was the same season it's, it's so long same, ago same season oh it's amazing they've come a hell of a long way he has a lot of credit and I think first and foremost um I don't know all the details but what I've definitely heard consistently from different people is that this Bayern dressing room can be a bit of a bitch, right? It can be, it can be, it can be very difficult to command the respect yeah. of every single member of that dressing room. And you need to play the game a little bit and you need to play the elder statesmen of the dressing room. You need to play them in their best positions. You need to make them happy. And if you make those players happy, if you get them going, your life will be good. If you don't, your life will be bad. Right. So there's the first lesson. And I think Niko Kovac fell foul of that. And also, I think he was seen as too defensive and too cautious. And he didn't play the type of football that Bayern wanted to play. So he was unpopular for, for, for lots of reasons. And, and those are the main two. So Flick comes in. And first of all, I think he commands the respect of the dressing room. Um, he assistant coached Germany to a World Cup win in 2014 was credited with a lot of the tactical work that went into Joachim Löw's side there. So immediately you've got Thomas Muller and Manuel Neuer, who played and starred in that team, on board. Brilliant start, Hansi. Well done. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, obviously he puts together an attacking game plan that gets the best out of these guys. He coaches a very coherent pressing system, which has smothered teams. And then the other thing I've noticed is that they are very, very good at set pieces. Very good at set pieces under Hansi Flick, attacking and defending, but particularly the attacking stuff. Very well coordinated, very, very dangerous. Like, I, th- I think all of that put together has created this machine. And I think it starts with the respect. I'm noticing a little trend. In fact, I'm going to I'm definitely going to talk about this on, on BR Football Ranks uh, this week as well, whereby have you seen the amount of legends that are walking into jobs now? So we've just seen Andrea Pirlo step yep. in for Juve. Uh, obviously, they're trying to follow the Pep Guardiola blueprint. There's a Dan blueprint. Frank Lampard's taken a job. Mikel Arteta has taken a job at, Art, uh, at Arsenal. You're seeing more and more of these types of people pushed into top jobs much quicker. And I think some of this is down to what I call the Zidane-Ronaldo complex, which is the amount of egos in these dressing rooms nowadays. Like th- th- To command the respect of these dressing rooms is getting harder and harder. And to deal with to deal with you know the, the young footballer in 2020 is getting harder and harder, 
and basically, unless you unless you Frank Lampard, you've already lifted this trophy once. They they, they you know you struggle to convince convince people to listen to you. And Flick yeah, I would, is, I would is, interject just to say I feel like that also partially explains the Simeone question I had earlier is that he's got the reputation that players will listen to because he kind of earned that on the field as a player, so he gets that backing as a manager. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't I, I feel a bit sad that this feels like a prerequisite because I don't think that should be the case. I think it shows like a, a lack of respect to a lot of others. And look, not everyone's like this, but the, the managers that don't have that clout and that playing experience behind them, they need to be way cleverer about what they do. So let's take Julian Nagelsmann as your as your prime example. Mm-hmm. He enters management in his late 20s. Who the hell is this guy is probably what a Bayern Munich player would think. And he's been touted for the Bayern Munich job for ages, years and years. And he went from Hoffenheim and he rejected the Bayern job and he went to Leipzig and now he's at Leipzig and he'll stay at Leipzig for a bit and then he'll take the next step. He's managing his own career really cleverly because he knows that if he goes from Hoffenheim to Bayern, right, they're just going to look at him and go, who the hell is that? Yep. You know, if, they, if they're willing to do that to Niko Kovac, who is a decorated former player and, and, and Croatian international, then what chance does Nagelsmann have? So you have to be much cleverer about it if you don't have that clout. Whereas Pirlo obviously has the clout, so he'll walk in and command that respect, no problem. And the reason I call it the Zidane-Ronaldo complex is because Zidane was the one that was sort of credited with being able to really tame Ronaldo. And he was the one that was able to get away with benching him for a midweek game or, 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 or home to Levante at the start, uh, at the, on the Saturday because you've got, you've got Bayern Munich on the Tuesday. He, he can turn around to Ronaldo and go, you're not playing this game because I want you fresh. Ronaldo goes, no, I want to play every game. He's like, listen, mate, I'm Zidane. Listen to me. And no one was able to do that. Rafa Benitez just was, was a disaster for this reason, right? It, it's much harder to command this respect. So I think that's, I think that's where we are with it, to be honest. So I've got a real long tail no, there, but that's, that's where we are. I think you've also brought it home with the idea that I'm going to assume that you would agree that Kike Setien does not command that level of respect within Barcelona, and maybe that's also why he fails to sort of get the team on board, get everybody playing the same sort of consistent way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, you know, Setien was like, you know, when he talks about, like, it's a really romantic story. I'm, I'm sure you saw the quotes. He was like, when I got the call, I was walking the field with my yeah. cows. That's like really cool. I loved that. But bloody hell, Kike, give yourself a chance. Do you know what I mean? You're walking, <laughs> walk, you're walking into a changing room yeah. and you've got uh, a locker room and you've got like Messi, Suarez, Griezmann. You've got Champions League and World Cup winners. And you, you, know, you like playing chess at lunch in the field. Like, you've got to give yourself a chance here. And I don't think he set himself up on a great, great, great strand there. He's, his assistant manager has like, fallen out with Messi several times and they don't, they don't really like each other. Like, it, it's, been, it's been hurtling towards a, a bit of a disaster for a while. And it starts with... Who the hell are you? That's basically what I think uh, with regard to these, these, these newer player-manager relationships. And, and Setien can't really answer that question because he's a philosopher and a chess player and he likes walking the fields with his cows. Like, he, he, can't, he can't give you the correct answer. And also, to be fair, to be fair, let's just also say Setien wants to play high-press attacking football and he's got a load of 32-year-olds to, to, to utilise. They can't do it. Like the the, the, yeah. the squad is it's too old. It's ill-fitted to the system that Barcelona want to play. And it doesn't work. But 
right from the off, you're off, we're off, you're off on a bad foot there, I think, with, with Seti and Barca. I enjoy very much that you seem to be in the similar position, position that I am, which is this feels like it's just going to be Bayern Munich winning this, but you feel so uncomfortable saying that because the opponent is Barcelona with Lionel Messi that you, like, you, I feel like I have to over-explain why I feel like this is going to be the case. And in this case, I do think almost the lazy narrative is the correct narrative. What you would sort of usually see is like the keys to this game, it's going to be, can Lionel Messi... Like, drag Barcelona to a win, or will it be the team performance of Bayern Munich that gets the job done? Is that a fair sort of key matchup for this one, is basically Messi versus Bayern? Yeah, kind of. It's just who executes. And, and by who executes, I don't mean which team. I mean, is it Bayern or is it Messi? Because mm-hmm. I, just don't, I just don't think that Barcelona are going to be able to cope with Bayern Munich in any phase of the game except for Messi will usually have the beating of his player. And that's why I'm so intrigued by the Alfonso Davies matchup. Obviously, he's going to get help from his, his left centre-back in, in David Alaba. He's going to get some help from probably Joshua Kimmich in, in central midfield. If he plays there, he, he played right back the other night, so I don't know. But he, they're going to need to group him. They're not just going to leave Davies one-on-one. But what an intriguing matchup. Someone who is like so like, Olympic-level fast and has shown such incredible 1v1 defensive ability um, over the last well, six months or so, going up against Messi. What a test. And one other just like little nugget that I really love is that Alfonso Davies references Messi as his idol and the best player in the world and the player that he grew up watching and trying to emulate. And at the age of 19, he gets to come up against him one like directly 1v1 on the flank. And I think it's just incredible to, to, to think about and to, and to, to Which, imagine. Yeah, and it, and it makes that matchup even more compelling because then you have like any, like a, a, a sub-question to the question, which is, if you're playing against your idol, does that lead you to elevate your game because you want to prove that you belong, you want to sort of respect them by giving it your all, or do you get overwhelmed by the moment and sort of like, wow, I'm defending Lionel Messi. Oh, he got by me. Uh-oh. So like, it could be either <laughs> one of those. That makes it really compelling as well. Okay, I'm, I am more excited for uh, Bayern Barcelona than I thought I would be. Uh, which leads, I think, to our final game. The one that I, I will be honest and say I, I think I have the least enthusiasm for, but I think it's because I have the least familiarity with Lyon. And then as a Man United fan, I don't love the success of Man City, but they're also <laughs> very fun to watch. I want to start with Lyon, though, because uh, I'm aware... I try not to ask this question. I tend, up to, tend to end up asking a question that is met with. It's probably a little bit of both. I'm aware that that's probably going to be your answer to this. I'm going to ask it anyway. Leon advancing past Juve has, I think, mostly been painted from what I've seen as Juve are so bad they even lost to Leon. Like, of course they have to sack Sarri if he can't even get past Leon. And to me, watching that game, yes, I see the frustration. I see the, the reasons why it's not working for Juve. But to me, it's not as though they were just sort of completely played off the pitch. This wasn't the way the Napoli game went, let's say, uh, with them just being comprehensively beaten. Was this sort of an example of Juve being very bad? Was it an example of Lyon being very, very good? Or, as I said at the very beginning, is this maybe a little bit of both? You know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, so rather than say that phrase, let's put it, let's put it this way. Um, if, if a very well-drilled defensive formation like Lyon's, like their 3-5-2 that they have set up for in the last uh, three massive games that they've played, Juve home and away and PSG in the cup final as well. If the 3-5-2 that they have put together, which is defensively solid, has enough speed on the breakaway to attack teams and hurt them, it has a really hard-working midfield three that cover the yards, do their job, and you've got one difference maker up front like Memphis Depay, if you put that up against a team 
who passed the ball unbelievably slowly around for 90 <laughs> minutes with no purpose and no cutting edge and no ability to move the ball through the lines, between the lines, no ability to dribble forward, you are not going to win. Like So, yeah, it's a bit of both, but it's a bit of both because Juve, the, the pace to their passing was atrocious. They ended up looking totally clueless. They ended up bringing Dybala on, even though he was injured, because they just didn't know what to do. The only player that I thought played well outside of Ronaldo, because he was quite good, obviously, scored two goals. Um, the only player I thought injected any sliver of speed and positivity into their play was Alexandro, who would always, when given the ball, try to take his man on, try and instigate a quick combination, try and utilize a back heel to try and catch someone off guard, maybe open a bit of space. Everybody else was rubbish. So, yeah, Juve were bad, but they played into the hands of Leon, who were well-drilled, executed well, did their jobs. I mean, they got a tiny bit lucky in that Juve missed two free headers. Ronaldo won, and I think Bonucci was the other. Um, something something to be a bit cautious of. But typically speaking, they were... They were they were they were very good. Juve were very bad, but digging a bit deeper than that, that is why that happened. Leon, well drilled, knew what they were doing, closed the space, the midfield three worked tremendously hard, and they devoted a lot of resources to stopping Ronaldo as well as they could. Juve slummed about, had no urgency, didn't know what to do, brought Dybala on, he was injured, gave up. That's basically how it was. Uh, I want to stick with Juve for a moment, and then we'll get back to this uh, impending fixture. Uh, you mentioned Fiello getting the appointment. Uh, it, it is his second job. I said this uh, on, on the pod yesterday. Oh, come on. Uh, you know, I mean, the other one he had for nine days, but still, whatever, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of that appointment? Because uh, there are very limited reasons for thinking, oh, this is definitely going to be a good idea, aside from what you've already mentioned. It's the legend coming in, and he'll be able to play the right way, and he won't maybe agitate for certain moves because he knows that he's fortunate to be in this position like i i struggle to comprehend the thinking aside from we brought in a, a, a like a system manager to replace the manager who's had some success that didn't work we don't want another system manager we want someone who's just steeped in the tradition is that about it uh, well i mean first things first i'd be gutted if i was a juve under 23 fan because we had Pirlo on yeah. board in charge for nine days and he was taken away from us. It's an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, my heart goes out to all the Juve under 23 fans yeah. right now. You, you don't get um, to that, that, that majestic feathered hair. You don't get that around you anymore. It's going to be a whole thing. I don't know how they're going to deal with it. Yeah, I don't know. With Juve and Pirlo, we have absolutely zero evidence, zero evidence to say that it will either work or will not work in the same way that we had no evidence to say whether or not Arteta would be a, a, a positive or a success for Arsenal. You simply have to wait and see. Um, from what I've gathered, Juve see Pirlo as uh, a player who gets Juve, I think, is is the key part. So, you know, I, I, like, I like that you said uh, that with a question mark. He well, gets I mean, I'm still Juve? Not really, yeah. I'm still not really that sure what it means. <laughs> yeah. But like, so Sarri, Sarri can, his, his, uh, his, the, the way he spoke about the Champions League was consistently like, It'd be, it would be amazing if we won, wouldn't it? Like, what a bonus. <laughs> How good would that be? And they're like, yeah, you know that we bought Ronaldo for 100 million at age 33 to win this thing. Like, this is our literally our number one priority. It's not a bonus. It's your first objective, Maurizio. And I think his kind of like wishy-washy kind of romantic language r around the clear club priority, I think it got him fired. I mean, mm -hmm. apart from obviously, you know, the results like it was a very close run title race they only got like 80 
three points or something like that. It's the, the first time they've dipped below 90 points since 2015. They were not convincing. They didn't kill te- teams off. They were consistently winning by one goal and were eking out results at the end. It wasn't very Juve. It wasn't very, we are we are in command of everything that's happening. It felt like that had slipped. And I think they see Pirlo as, as a man who understands that, who understands the standards at the club, who understands the priorities and the objectives at the club. And they hope, I guess, that he can encourage some good football along the way, because ultimately Allegri understood all that and got fired because his team's just crossed to Mandzukic at the back post. So we come full circle and we hope that Juve look better. I think they need to do some surgery on the squad to get any better. I mean, they've got Artur coming in. They've got Dejan Kulisevsky arriving back off, obviously, the second half of his loan deal. I mean, they're going to try and buy a few players here and there. They're going to try and shift about 10, I think. Um and I'd like to see Sandro Tonali join because he looks like Pirlo. So it'd be funny to just see Pirlo <laughs> instructing Pirlo. Um, but they, do, they need to get a little bit younger and need to get a bit more back in tune with what Juve believe they are. And then and, and Pirlo obviously is the man that they've chosen. They think he understands all that. Again, I come back to my first point, though. Literally not a clue if it's any good because I haven't spent any time with him recently. I don't know what kind of a coach he is. I don't know how he interacts with players. You know, it, it, it's 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 as much of an unknown as Arteta at Arsenal, uh, Lampard at Derby, except this is one hell of a spotlight, even even more demanding than than Arsenal was. Uh, so he, he hasn't got a lot of room for error, has he? He does not. At the very least, he does have, as we've already said, a familiarity with the kind of size and prestige of, of Juve. I think that is something there is something to be said for when a manager who's coming from a smaller club or a club that isn't just quite on that like global brand stage, they don't often change their post-match talking points. The one that always comes most readily is David Moyes in charge of Manchester United saying like, we'd love to emulate the way City play. Like we look up to them in the way they're, they're trying to play. And that was, I feel like to the United board, that was instantly like, oh, you are not the right person for this job. Like that is yeah. not what we're looking for for you to say. So, yeah, at the very least, I assume Pirlo will not be saying those types of things that will infuriate the board. Uh, but we'll see what he does in the next season. For now, we should probably talk about the actual game that's going to be happening, City versus Lyon. You talked about Lyon, the back three, uh, having Memphis Depay being very, very good, despite having an, uh, an ACL injury this season. Again, this season's been very long. Uh, but, <laughs> but we would basically expect them to do exactly what they did against Juve, against Man City, except that Man City will be moving the ball much, much faster, we would assume, and being much, yep. much more aggressive, we would also assume. So do you think this goes similarly, or how do you think this game plays out? I mean, yeah, I think um, I think we will see literally the exact same version of Leon. Yep. Um, maybe Moussa Dembele starts instead of Carl Toko Akambi up front, but that's basically where we are. I think they like the fact that Akambi is really fast and will run directly through the channel, and he could pin the centre-backs back. And that creates a little pocket for Memphis to receive the ball, turn and go. And he becomes their transitional threat. So we definitely know what Leon are going to do. Like, that's very obvious. And City, it's up to Pep to, to figure out a way around it, as he always does. I've noticed with Pep that he has tightened up a little bit in Europe as well. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed this too, but he's, he's uh, I mean, tr- I guess he tried it towards the end of last season. Uh, but this season, he's definitely liking Rodri and Gundogan. Uh, he likes the added solidity in midfield. I think he understands that these games are more cagey, uh, a little bit more close. And in just in just 90 minutes rather than two legs, there's obviously even less room for error. And I think he's no, I'm not compromising on his principles a bit, but I think he's he's accepted that he has to be a bit more cautious. And so you're going to see Fernandinho and Laporte at centre back. You're going to see Rodri and Gundogan protecting them. So. And, and Carl Walker plays like a an inverted kind of defensive right back role. And if he con- continues with Cancelo on the left, I mean, Cancelo's right footed. So 
there's only so much he can do when he moves forward because he's not as comfortable on his left, which means City go from attacking what, what, with what you always maybe associate City attacking with seven or eight. They're attacking with four. So I think this might be a little bit tight. And I'm, I'd back City to win it because they have the superior quality overall. They have Kevin De Bruyne, one of the best five players in world football. Gabriel Jesus is usually a worry, but I thought he was excellent in both legs against Real Madrid. And Raheem Sterling, if you're going to find space... Uh, against this Leon side, and um, Federico Bernadeschi found literally that one pocket. Do you remember when he ran in behind Cornet um, yeah. and, and managed to dribble across the entire byline and nearly scored? It was a remarkable move. Um, he was actually space- the only other player I thought you were going to mention when you talked about Juve being good. Was Bernade- I thought Bernadeschi had moments. He certainly had some moments where he did not look so good, but I, w- I would yeah. throw him in that consideration. But it doesn't yeah, really matter. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe. Um, he's, uh, he, yeah, he was, he was quite good. But yeah, so Bernadeschi found the pocket of space there. That's like the only pocket of space that actually exists, to be yeah. honest, against, against Leon because the, because the midfield three works so hard to close off all of the avenues and they shift from side to side so well. The average age, by the way, that Leon midfield is 21.3. They are... Incredible players. Awa, Bruno Guimaraes and Maxence Kakare. Really, really good. Like if you watch this game and you're you're, you're fully familiar with Man City and there's nothing new to learn, watch Leon's midfield three. They are are brilliant. And Um, if people, really quickly, if people are not familiar, can you say those three names one more time? Because I want people to write them down and then look them up and see how (laughs) wrong their spelling was. Go ahead. Hussem Awa, Maxence Kakare and Bruno Guimaraes. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, no, not it's not it's not easy. You have to take a deep breath before you say them. You really do. Um, yeah, no, not at all. So um, <laughs> anyway, there's not a lot of space, you know, in in the structure at Leon because of the way they they play. So you're going to need a clever player to find those spots. And I think it's Sterling. Like Sterling is that player. Like in terms of off the ball movement, he's he's pretty close to like the the Thomas Muller round Deuser levels of. Oh my God! How did he get there? Oh, it's gone in. Like that kind of. <laughs> like, he's he's really close to that. He's he is like you got to pay him that respect. So, I back City to to ghost into enough areas to just find the weak points in Leon's system. But I don't think it's going to be a convincing win because Leon have shown a robustness and a tactical organisation that you simply cannot discount. Particularly as I keep saying, over ninety rather than one hundred and eighty minutes. I actually think Leon will be a more challenging opponent in some ways than Real Madrid proved to be, not just because Real Madrid made colossal mistakes, uh, both yeah. individual and sort of tactically, uh, but also because you're not going to have Leon trying to possess out of the back and, and slowly build and sort of play into Man City's hands. And that is a thing. I felt like Man City did such a good job of just completely blocking off all options that Real Madrid really struggled to create anything and ended up either having to go long or giving the ball away and conceding goals. So I think if Man City can find a way through that Leon defense and get this result, I think that will be a much bigger result than we've seen because these two teams have met several times in recent history. And I think it's not, it is always an interesting game, but I think it's never seen as a like, oh, wow, Man City were able to get past Leon. Like that's, that's a sign of things to come. It's more of a like, yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. It's Leon, they're fine, but it's Man City. They have all the money. They haven't haven't beaten them. The last two times they've played them, they've failed to win either. See, there we go. All right. So let's uh, make it happen. Lost 2-1 at home in 2018. And then a couple of months later, drew 2 all. In Leon, so no, it's a slightly different team, I guess. And Dombele played in those games, and, and he's no longer there. But hey, Leon is a production factory; they just keep on coming. So you know, in place of Dombele, there's 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 Kakare. So nothing to worry about there. This is um this is a, a fixture that Pep Guardiola has found difficult, and this is a fixture that will that Man City will find difficult again. I I think I bat them to, to make it through, um, but this is going to be this is going to be tight. This is going to be tough. They're going to do Leon are going to do all the things that Man City hates, and. 
I hope Leon can play a nice clean game in the box defensively because it could be that you know a stray ball here and there could be could be the, could be the one. I hope that I hope any goal that City scores is really is a really a really good piece of attacking play that as that and the goal is earned. Like you know, as you talked about with the Real Madrid game, City did extremely well to block most of those avenues off and control the game and show a maturity and an awareness at certain points. Obviously, Rodrigo managed to beat Cancelo down the outside and cross for Benzema to head home. That's not like a systematic problem. That's just good play. Mm-hmm. Like you just have to respect the fact that that was a really good goal and you can't do something about everything. But Leon have to make it like that. Leon have to force City to score a brilliant goal to win this game. And I think they're capable of doing that. I have a large question that I will try to ask succinctly. And it is a two-parter. So buckle up for that. Uh, oh, Jesus. We we have seen Pep Guardiola obviously have some success in the Champions League, but then we have seen him overthink things, is what I would say, and sort of try different things, try some gambles that do not pay off. Do you think that Pep Guardiola overthinks certain big matches? And if so, why do you think he does that? So I don't fully buy into the idea that he overcomplicates Interesting. things. Interesting. Okay. Um, I can see where the I can see where the viewpoint comes from, and for a while I thought the same. Um, and I, I saw I saw what he did against Tottenham um, last season in the Champions League, and, and obviously they ended up you know losing on the finest of margins uh, to Tottenham in the quarterfinals, and it got it you know the, you know it got pedaled out again. You know Pep's overcomplicated; he's overthought a big game. I thought I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. Like ultimately, what people are trying to point to there is they have an idea of how Man City play under Pep Guardiola and how and how Pep teams play. And they probably see 4-3-3, possession football, a number six with two eights. It's all the same. You know, he always plays these types of wingers. And they think that he plays the same game or the same style or the same plan with every game. And then it gets to a big one and they see that he's changed to a 4-2-3-1. And they're like, oh, he's overcomplicated it. And I'm like, I think that misses the point on just how much detail goes into every single game plan he creates. Mm -hmm. So just because they played Watford, Aston Villa... Southampton, Man United in a row in four fixtures. He didn't play the same team in all of those. Like he changed the game plan for all of them, right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the Champions League, people play closer, pay closer attention. The spotlight shines harsher, and if you make a mistake, it's more obvious. The quality of players is increased, and like it or not, with the Champions League over the years. The element of luck has had a major say in these things. Yep. Like, you, I mean, so I, know I once got asked a, a question a couple of months ago on a different podcast. Like, what would you say, like, is the theme or like what have the Champions League teams had in common over the years? I'm like, they've got lucky. Like when six awesome teams meet in these high, high pressure, intense circumstances, you need to get a bit lucky sometimes. And like, basically, I'm not saying Pep's just been unlucky, but I think to say that he overcomplicates things on the big stage will probably, it probably pays a disservice to how much thought goes into every single game plan he creates. And then over the years, he's got a bit unlucky at times. He's fallen a bit foul of the margins. I mean, you take the Tottenham games, man, just from last year. Aguero missed a penalty. Is that his fault? Like, you know, Bernardo's, um, offside by a millimeter for this, for the last stunning. Is that, it's not, it's not his fault, is it? Like, it's just, it's just sometimes that's just how it goes. Um, if, so any, not- if anything, it's definitely not his fault because I feel like I have the faith that Pep Guardiola has told his players the exact millimeter that they're supposed to be standing. And I'm going to assume <laughs> that then that was just a violation of his instructions. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. They're just doing it to spite him. Exactly. Uh, it's been, look, it's, it's one of those things that gets built up and it gets, it only, it only increases steam 
as the years tick by that he hasn't won the Champions League again. Mm -hmm. And that is often used as a stick to beat him with. And again, I don't want to to spend five minutes coming across as like the ultimate Pep defender because he has his flaws. But if you lead your teams to semi-finals consistently, which he did with Bayern Munich and Barcelona and won a few, um, and could well do here with Manchester City and was unlucky to, unlucky not to last season then you're doing really well. And like, it's not a given that because you're the best, you win the Champions League. Like, as I say, sometimes you just need the margins to be with you. You just need that slice of luck. Or in Real Madrid's case, apologies to anyone that may feel sensitive towards this, you need the referee to ignore a few offsides every now and then. You know, that's just how it, that's just kind of how it works. Sam, you, <laughs> Sorry. Do, you do still have the Twitter handle Ultimate Pep Defender though, right? You are at Ultimate Pep Defender on Twitter? <laughs> uh, or did yes, you drop that one a while ago? All right, so final question wrapping up then. So... It sounds like you're saying Man City will have a difficult time, but maybe we should expect them to get past Lyon. We would assume mm-hmm. it will be then uh, them playing Bayern Munich in one semi. We would assume that Atletico will, atle- will Atletico their way past uh, Leipzig. If it is then Atleti in the semifinal versus Atalanta or, or PSG, which of those two teams do you think has the best chance of causing Atletico problems and potentially getting past them? Um, I'd say I'd back PSG to beat Atletico over Atalanta. As I say, I'm not 100% convinced PSG even get to get, yep. get that opportunity. But officially, like obviously, there's a lot of consternation. But if I'm drawing up a bracket, PSG meet Atletico Madrid in the semifinals. Barca, uh, Bayern Munich meet Manchester City. The winners of those semifinals are Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. And Bayern win the final is how I think it's going to happen. Bayern Atletico would be a good final. I will take that. And if that happens, we will certainly have you back on to discuss it or review it, one or the other. But either way, Sam, I appreciate you taking all the time in a very hot London to make sense of a very hot Champions League matchup. Mm -hmm. Yes. Enjoy the football, everybody. I'm super excited and so should you be. And you know what? It's really easy now because the caliber of games on show, it's much easier to convince the significant other or the mum or the parent or whatever it is to to just let you have football on all the time because it's important games, guys. You need to watch them. And the replays of them are also important. You need to watch those too. Uh, Sam, thank you again. uh, And I look forward to speaking again. Nice one, mate.